Mark 11 this morning. Unshrouded. This morning we look at righteous anger, uh, righteous indignation for those of you using the King James Version. We look at a scripture as we've been studying the emotions of Jesus as displayed, and we've been studying them for this reason. This is something you've heard through this entire series. The reason why we have set apart these weeks to study the emotions of Jesus, one is it shows us the extent of his humanity. If emotions are an instinctive response to something, uh, then we get to see the extent of Jesus' humanity. But we also get to see the expression of his heart. If emotions are an instinctive response to some stimulus, then we are not just seeing Jesus' action, but we are seeing the motivation of his heart. It gives us an opportunity to learn what it was that triggered those emotions in his life. So first is the extent of his humanity. The second, we see the expression of his heart. And the third reason we study the emotion of Jesus is that we may also look at it as an example for our lives too. There's never been anything that Jesus has said or done that we ought also not to say or do. And this morning, we, as we've looked at his compassionate love two weeks ago, last week we looked at him weeping. We'll look at another instance later in the weeks of Jesus weeping. But I want to jump to Jesus being angry. And this is something we may not consider much. We, we may not think about um, all that often in, in our lives. But let me tell you that this is not the only moment. What, what I'm about to read to you out of Mark chapter 11 is not the only moment in Scripture where Jesus demonstrated anger. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus was angry at the hard-heartedness of the religious leaders. And, and the Bible actually says that he was grieved and that he angered. He was angry because he had presented a very clear question to them. And out of their hard-heartedness and stubbornness, they refused to acknowledge his lordship. And he was angry with that. And in what we read in, Ma in Mark's account is similar, is also told in Matthew's account and Luke's account. So three of the four Gospels record this particular event. Now, John records a cleansing of the temple where Jesus showed, demonstrates anger. And, and John's account comes earlier in his Gospel. And he records it as an earlier, what we believe to be an earlier moment in Jesus' ministry. Where Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the cleansing of the temple happening in the last week when Jesus went into Jerusalem. John records it, and it appears to be fall at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. So in John chapter 2, you've got Jesus coming out, uh, the wedding at Cana in Galilee, and then he cleanses the temple at the beginning. And then what we believe to be about three and a half years later, Jesus enters into Jerusalem again, goes into the temple, and does something very similar to what he did in John chapter 2. So what we're reading in Mark chapter 11 is one of three accounts and two different stories of where Jesus cleansed the temple. Now, I know it is very tempting this morning for me to also want to share with you the story that, it, that has become a bookend for Jesus cleansing the temple, and that's the, the withering of the tree. And that's a very, very, uh, I'm very excited to be able to do that, but unfortunately due to time, I must only be able to keep to the cleansing of the temple. So I want you with me, please, to look in Luke cha or Mark chapter 11, verse 15, as we read this evangelist's particular account of what happened that day when he went into Jerusalem. 
Mark chapter 11, verse 15. So they came to Jerusalem, they being Jesus and the twelve disciples. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught them, saying to them, it is, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. And when evening had come, he went out of the city. In this, obviously, the word anger does not come up in our English Bibles, but we get the understanding. If, if someone was to walk in here this morning and walk right down to the front and throw these flowers off of this table and flip over the Lord's Supper table and kick over the pulpit, you would assume two things. One is they are crazy, and the other is that they are angry, right? We don't have to have the word anger in order to see that Jesus was clearly upset, angered at what he had witnessed in the temple that day. He goes in and guys, he cleans house. And I just want to tell you that the great thing is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, okay? Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, in, at least in the New King James Version, all say this. They say that Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out. And in my Bible, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, I underlined those four words, went into and drove out. And if you think about it, what happened with Jesus that day as he goes into Jerusalem, walks into the temple, goes into the court of Gentiles, that outermost courts, sees this and begins kicking people out, begins turning tables over and throwing money changers around and, 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 and telling people, commanding people to stop what they were doing. When I read that, I'm reminded of something. That this story that I'm reading about Jesus, of Him going into this temple, and all of a sudden when He goes in, things go out. I realize that this isn't such an isolated story. Because for each one of us that has trusted Christ as our Savior, could we not testify to that very same activity of Jesus? That when Jesus comes into our life, man, doesn't He start driving things out? I mean, just like he did there in the temple, he goes in, there's corruption, there's, there's, there, there are poor practices going on here, there's, there's a disregard of other people over here, there's some unwholesome things going on over here, there's a love of money going on over here, and Jesus walks in, man, and starts kicking it all out. And I can testify in my life that when Jesus has entered into my life as my Savior, he starts cleaning house, guys. And I'm sure that in your lives as individuals, you can say the same thing too. That he comes in and he starts kicking things out. He starts cleaning house. He starts removing that which was, does not bring glory to his name. Now, some of it indeed is sin. Starts revealing sin, bringing us to the place where we confess it and forsake it. But some of the stuff that he kicks out of our life is fear. Praise God for that. That Jesus can come into our lives and give us such a sense of security from the foundation of the Word of God that all of a sudden He starts driving out that fear and those feelings of worthlessness in our life. 
Praise God that the activity that we read of in those four words that he went into and drove out. Praise God Jesus is still doing that today. He still goes in and he still drives out. Let me remind you that anger is not a sin. Right now, I have just made friends with every man in this, in this congregation. In fact, I'm surprised that we didn't have probably one of the heartiest amens um, in this service. When I said that anger in itself is not sin. Okay, now, pastor, now what are you saying? That anger in itself is not sin. Well, anger itself ultimately can be righteous. Anger can be an instinctive response and it can be used for good. In Jesus' case, when he was angry... It was always a good thing. If anger was sin, Jesus never would have done it. Because Jesus is, was, holy. And when I think about this, if Jesus is angry, then I have to realize that anger itself is not a sin. In Psalm 4, verse 4, and Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Psalm 4, 4, and Ephesians 4, 26. The Bible says that we can be angry and yet not sin. The Bible says, be angry, but do not sin. So anger becomes sin when it's accompanied by vengeance, wrath, malice, hatred, greed, envy. All of those other things that can accompany our anger and grab onto it and become such a reckoning force in our life, that's when it becomes sin. But an anger itself, in itself, of itself, is not sin. In fact, it can be quite helpful in our life. It can help us. A righteous anger can help us and give us the courage and boldness to stand up for what is right, to no longer yield to, to temptation and to fall for tactics of the devil. Righteous anger can be a very good thing in our life as long as it does not get corrupted and polluted with vengeance and greed and envy and malice and hatred and all of those other things that want to tear us down. Those are dangerous. Anger in itself is fine, as long as it is not accompanied with sin. So, here's Jesus, walking into Jerusalem. The last week, we've already had the triumphant entry. People have said, Hosanna. He has marched now into Jerusalem, and he goes into the temple. Notice what he does. This brings us to our first point this morning. What did Jesus do? These points are going to be very similar to last week's points. If you missed last week's points, they're on, on the website. What did Jesus do? It says in verse 15, He went into the temple, began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. So obviously he comes in and starts wrecking things. He is not, he's not making any friends right here, it would appear. He has walked into the establishment. He has walked up to the place where they exchanged money. He has walked up to the place where they sold doves. And he started turning tables over. He was bringing to a very quick end this activity that had taken place. In the Gospel of John, earlier on in Jesus' ministry, it actually says that he tied cords together and made whips. Now wouldn't that have been something to see? Who says the Bible's boring? Seriously, who says the Bible's boring? Here we've got Jesus going on a tear in the church. That's anything but boring. That's really pretty exciting as long as we're on this end of it. 
Right? As long as we're not getting... Can you imagine? How bad do you have to be to get chased by cords out of church by Jesus? You've got to be a bad person, right? For Jesus to chase you out of church with cords. Anyway, I want to give you just a little bit of an insight into what Jesus was doing. The Bible makes it specific in Mark's account that he drove out those who bought and sold in the temple. What were they buying and selling? Obviously, this goes down to our second point in just a moment. Don't, don't put second point up there yet, Christina. Obviously, they were buying and selling something, um, goods. The Bible tells us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when we take all four accounts, that what they were selling were animals and things that went along with the uh, sacrifices in the temple of the day. People would come, Jews would come from great distances to worship at the temple. This was a very special week in Israel's history. This was leading up to the time of the Passover. There was no doubt a hustle and a bustle when all of these things were going on. In John's account, in the early part of his ministry, he also went in around the time of Passover. So he goes in at these very busy times when people are going to be coming in, not bringing their sacrifices with them, but trusting that when they get there, they'll be able to buy a lamb that is without blemish or spot. Or maybe when they come, they, they might be able to say, hey, you know what, I can just wait until I get to the temple and I can then uh, buy the dove or the turtle doves for my sacrifice for my family and I. Or, you know what, I may have forgotten the oil and some of the meal for the prep offering, so I'll just go ahead and buy that when I get to the temple. And what had happened was this idea of presenting these things for sale at the temple seemed to be a a, a marriage of convenience. Because the religious leaders definitely wanted people to participate in the sacrifices. The people probably wanted a little bit more convenient way to be able to get their, 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 their items for their sacrifice. And it also would have made money for the religious leaders. They would have gotten a percentage of that. Obviously, money played a big part because as people were coming in from different countries and different surroundings, they had to have the temple tokens. So they would take their money and cash it in for these temple tokens in which they could buy nothing at all like Chuck E. Cheese, if that's what you're thinking. Nothing at all like that. And what Jesus, what we understand in this is that the activity, the activity is what made Jesus so upset. Obviously, he overturns the money changers. He drives out those people who were buying and selling. What Jesus is saying in this single act is what is going on is wrong. And Jesus tells us why. He gives us two reasons as he quotes uh, Scripture both from Jeremiah and Isaiah. And he puts them together when he says that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of thieves. Obviously, there are two problems with what is going on when Jesus goes into the temple. And I pray this. I pray that as I get ready to go into the real meat of this message this morning, I pray that every one of our eyes and our hearts and our ears will be open because I believe what Jesus did the other day, even though we're not talking about a temple today, I believe there are some principles that can still apply to our lives today. What did Jesus do? He went in and wreaked havoc. Jesus went in and made things different, drove people out, had them immediately stop that activity. And here's the question. Why did he do it? My house, he says, shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of thieves. Obviously, the first thing is this. They had lost their focus. 
Jesus comes back in and purges this unrighteousness. All for the purpose that He may restore, restore the purpose for which that house was even erected. See, they had, obviously when money is thrown into things, we have to be very careful that we do not begin serving the money and start making decisions based off of money. But that appears to be what has happened in Jerusalem, in the temple that day. That these people who may have started out very genuine, uh, very, a very good idea to offer these things for the, the, the Jews that would come in for sacrifice, obviously they started manipulating the prices Because Jesus is turning these things over and saying, you've turned this into a den of thieves. You're robbing. You are robbing these people. Jesus calls them a big bunch of stealers. Or as we call in my house, swipers. These people would come in, they would get this service, but they would pay dearly for the service. Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you, he says, have made it a den of thieves. The temple at that moment had become a money-making business. Notice something that is exclusive. Exclusive to Mark's account. When he quotes... Jeremiah and Isaiah. Mark includes something in that quote that some of the other evangelists don't. And it gives us a little better, deeper understanding of what ticked Jesus off so much. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for who? For who? All nations. Do you know where these money changers were set up? Please listen carefully. The money changers, those who were peddling wares in the, Gentile, uh, in, the, in the temple that day, those who were doing the business that, that irked Jesus to the point that He goes in and causes this great spectacle. When Jesus is restoring the purpose for which the temple was made, He says it's to be a house of prayer for all nations. And He's speaking specifically to the fact that they had set up the money changers. They had set up all of the buying and the selling and the peddling of wares. They had made this a flea market right in the middle of the court of the Gentiles. Why is this important? The court of the Gentiles was the outermost court that went around the temple. And this is the great thing. When Jesus is saying, you have, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, what he is doing is in that single word condemning them that they have taken the court of the Gentiles where a Gentile who was not a Jew was able to come in. They were able to experience part of the, 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 the worship of the temple. They were only able to come to that outermost court. But they could meet a Jew there. That was a great mission opportunity and evangelistic opportunity, if you want to consider it like that, for the Jews. They could see all of these Gentiles who would come into the court of the Gentiles and they could talk with them there. And God was always, throughout Scripture, willing to include Gentiles into all of the blessings of Israel. And yet, the Israelites, the religious priests, 
those who were engaged in the buying and selling of merchandise had placed it right in the court of the Gentiles. What are they saying? We don't care about anybody else. We don't care about including people. We don't care about introducing other nations to Jehovah. All we care about is getting their money. When Nehemiah had gone in and restored, in a similar fashion, had restored Jerusalem, and had overseen the building of the walls and the restructuring of the community, he went back and visited after an absence. And when he had gone back, his heart was grieved over what he had seen. Because in the temple there was a storehouse, and that storehouse was to take all of the grain and the goods, and from the grain and the goods, they were then to disperse those to the Levites, who were the priests, and to the widows and orphans. So everything that was in the temple treasury was to be dispersed to pay the priests and also to minister to the fatherless and the widows. And when Nehemiah had gone back, one of the great enemies of the work was named Tobiah. And Tobiah was found in the temple storehouse. All of the grain, all of the goods had been moved out and Tobiah had been moved in and all of his furniture was there. The temple storehouse failed to be the purpose for which it was created and started being a place where this enemy was living. And Jesus walks right into Jerusalem, walks right into the temple, and here in the court of the Gentiles, that one place where our God with a universal mission, had, where it was set up where Gentiles could come and be introduced to Jehovah, they were confronted with men who were selling, buying, and commerce. What an ugly first impression that would have been. I would imagine it would be much like us when you come into the foyer. I would imagine it would be much like us rather than saying we're glad you're here if we started selling something or asking you if you had any money. What a horrible first impression that was. And Jesus walks in, no doubt, angry because they had absolutely, positively lost the focus for why they were there. Mark also notices something in his description in verse 15. It says he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold what? Dove. Something else they were doing that displeased Jesus greatly. The turtle dove was an awesome sacrifice. Not because it was beautiful and not because it was costly, but in the fact that it was very inexpensive. Because God, in the book of Leviticus, and I wrote this down because you're going to want this cross-reference. Leviticus chapter 14, verse 22. Leviticus chapter 14, verse 22. God makes a way for the poorest among men and women to be able to purchase something that they could sacrifice that would be sufficient. And it was a dove. 
Leviticus 14.22 says that the dove is reserved and is there as a sacrifice that is acceptable to God even for the poorest of people who cannot afford all of these other things. And when Jesus walks in, no doubt, who having a heart continually broken and softened and sensitive to the poor, sees these men sitting at these tables in the court of the Gentiles not just selling doves, but obviously as a den of thieves, they're stealing from these people. They are, they are absolutely taking advantage of the poor. In Luke chapter 2, verse 24. No wonder this had to be very sensitive to Jesus in His ministry to the poor and in His serving and loving the poor. And the scripture reference that I just gave you, it describes to us this. That Joseph and Mary, when they took Jesus in after he was born, and they took him into that temple to dedicate him, they dedicated him by the sacrifice of dove. No doubt, as Jesus walked into the temple, no doubt seeing them taking advantage, losing sight of the focus for which they were even there. And in that, they were, they were taking advantage of the poorest of people. And that they were hiking up the prices and stealing from those people, even that would come in to buy a modest dove to worship. Now, as we see and as these things are pulled back and we understand the culture and the times, obviously we see why Jesus was a little more angry and upset. They had lost the purpose for which they were made. They became a money-making organization. They had forgotten to reach out and minister to all nations. They were taking advantage of the poor. Notice this next one. He says, but you have made it a den of thieves. G. Campbell Morgan says this, that a den of thieves is where thieves go to hide. Think about that for a moment. A den of thieves is not where they steal so much as where they go and hide from their stealing. What was going on there in the temple when Jesus says you're a den of thieves, what they were doing was covering up their sin by their religious location and action. By being there in the temple, they were giving off the impression that they were good and that things were going right. All the while, on the underside, they were taking advantage and robbing and stealing from people who Jesus was very concerned about. It had become a place that had tolerated sin. This had gone on, obviously, for a while. Jesus is letting them know, you know what, even though everybody else has no idea what you're doing, Jesus, the defender of the poor, the defender of the weak, Jesus, the righteous judge, walks in, and in His omniscience of their heart, He says, I know what you're doing. I'm calling you out. I'm pulling back the curtains on your life. And I'm telling you now, you need to get out. Jesus had had enough. What did He do? He cleansed the temple. Why did He do it? Horrible. Horrible activity was being engaged in. In the house of God. In the name of God. And please notice the third point this morning. Obviously something this large is going to have some results. So what was the result this morning? Jesus going in and kicking things over and driving people out. Well, what was the result? Well, the Bible tells us. Notice something in verse 17, please. Jesus says, my house 
shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus doesn't just go in and disrupt things. Jesus goes in and declares in this action that I am God. He is making a claim to divinity, taking that scripture that was originally spoken by God the Father. He is applying it now to his life, to his situation, to who he was. So when he walks in, he's saying, Daddy's home. Enough of this. No more of this activity needs to take place because I am God and I'm calling it quits. I'm making sure that this is brought to an end. Jesus interferes beyond the physical. On the spiritual, he is saying, I am God. This was a claim of his divinity. And notice what happened as a result. The scribes, verse 18, the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. They sought how they might destroy him. If we ever have to consider the true hardness of the hearts of the religious elect, elite, we don't really have to look much further than this. Jesus walks into this place on an activity that is known to be wrong, he defends the poor, he kicks out sin uses scripture to prove it shows that he is lord and everything he has done is good for a good reason and yet the religious leaders want to kill him oh how hard our hearts can be oh how dull our ears can be of hearing the true teachings of the word of god oh how hardened we can become to the direction of our Lord. That even in hearing what we need to hear. Even having it outlined for us. Rather than responding accordingly. We seek to kill or to shut up. The word of God. I'm glad to tell you. That even though Mark is the one who says. That the religious leaders sought to destroy him. I'm glad to tell you that Matthew's account says something different. Oh yes, Matthew's account does say that they sought to kill him. Matthew lets us know that those religious leaders were angry at being called those things and angry at this disturbance that had taken place. But let me read to you an awesome verse. Absolutely awesome verse that is a response to what Jesus did. And then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Matthew 21, 14. After all of this had taken place, the religious leaders despise him, hate him. The merchants are angry at him. Then the blind and the lame came in to him and he healed them. You know what they saw in Jesus? Isn't this amazing? One large action. The great Holy Week in Israel's history. The great showcase of all of the weeks. And here comes Jesus and just messes everything up. Starts calling people names. Starts causing a disturbance. And this big, this big thing that Jesus is doing right in the temple courtyard has two very different reactions. 
Some people get angry and they don't want to hear it anymore. They want to silence the messenger. They want to make sure that they never hear anything like that again. While others, while others are actually drawn to Jesus. As a result, in, Mar- in, in Matthew chapter 21, verse 14, as a result, as a result of the cleansing of the temple, then the blind and the lame came in. They were obviously excluded. Can I ask you, can I tell you something? Ah, in light of what we've seen, I have to believe that the blind and the lame would have been some of the least able to afford any sacrifice other than a dove. So when Jesus comes in, reforms the way things are done, it gives entrance to those who had previously been excluded. He is a defender of the weak. I mean, oh, what a great thing. What a way for Matthew to end it to say that while Mark says that they were seeking to kill him, Matthew says that glory has once again been revealed in the temple. That all of that darkness has been kicked out and now light is abounding and light is shining out of the windows and people are walking around and lame are being healed and children are shouting the name of Jesus and hosannas are being lifted up. Oh, I'm so thankful that Matthew's account does not leave us with people angry wanting to shut up the messenger, but Matthew leaves us with the account that the most disenfranchised, hurt, lame, sick, blind, needy, poor people who are crawling literally above the dust of the ground, literally find refuge in Jesus. And I want to tell you something. There are two different responses in this. And I believe that when Jesus blows up in our life, when Jesus blows up in our life, much like He did in a reformation in the temple, when Jesus cleanses and, 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 and purges things in our life, we, we respond really in those two ways also. You can't respond but in those two ways. You can't have Jesus blow up in your life in such a way and not be moved in some way. And I believe that we respond in two different ways too. I believe we become hardened to it. We don't want to hear that anymore. We don't want to be around that anymore. We want to close our ears. We want to go la, la, la and not listen to what God is saying. We want to try to kill the messenger. Separate ourselves from those words as much as we can or we respond or we respond like the poor and the lame that they see that those reformations are good. They see that that purging needed to happen and they take full advantage of it. Or better yet, take full advantage of Him. And in our life, obviously, what does this teach us? It teaches us that Jesus does not tolerate sin on any level. Jesus does not want us to forgive, forget the purpose for which we were formed. And you know, beyond the temple of the day, beyond the building structure that it was, can we look beyond that for just a moment and take these pieces that we've learned and maybe see in the temple our own lives and see as we consider these things this morning, What is Jesus doing in my life? 
What activity that may have been started as a very good thing, or maybe we could try to justify all of the actions we're doing, but what sin in our life is Jesus trying to deal with? Is Jesus purging? Is Jesus wanting us to focus on and wanting us to recognize what is Jesus as He comes in? What is He kicking out? And how are we responding to that testimony that He is Lord? Do we respond by stiffening our necks and turning them against the direction that He wants to change us? Do we reject His message altogether and try to find a way to shut out the message of, the, of Jesus and shut out the message of Lordship? Do we continue to try to kick against the goads as the Apostle Paul did? Do we continue to try to battle against that conviction that God has placed in our life? Or do we respond like the, lime, the lame and the blind and truly... Come to Jesus because we see that his reformation is good. I don't know. I don't know the answer to this for your life, but I can ask the question nonetheless. Do you know the purpose for which you have been formed? Do you know the purpose for which you have been formed? When Jesus said that my house shall be called a house of prayer, he was talking about our personal communication to him. For all nations. We're not just to have, we're not just created for a purpose of knowing and communicating with the one true God through Jesus Christ, through a saving relationship, but we're called to recognize and to glorify Him in all the world to all people. That's our purpose to know Him and to make Him known. And there are many things that threaten that in our life. There are many things that we, we fight against, we battle against, we try to live for our own purpose, our own way, our own doings, our own dealings, our own dreams. And I pray this morning that we would remember the word Lord. Jesus says, my purpose is for you to know me and to live for me, making me known in all of the world, wherever you go, Monday through Sunday, that you would make me known. And as Jesus walks into our life, as I believe he's been examining our hearts right now, many of us probably know that and are aware of that. This morning, are we willing to lay those things down? Are we willing to set them down? Can I tell you one last thing? Look at Mark chapter 11, verse 11. And I'll end with this. Mark 11, verse 11. This happens before the cleansing of the temple. The day before. Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when He had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, He went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus the night before had seen what was going on. He already knew it. And in your life, let me say this right now. You may say, Pastor, I've been doing this. I've been engaged in this activity for a long time. And Jesus hasn't blown up on my scene. Jesus hasn't come into my house and started overturning tables. And what I would tell you is this, just because Jesus did not act in Matthew or Mark 11:11 11, 11, did not mean that he allowed it. 
And in your life, it doesn't matter what you're doing, if it is sin, if it is against the will and the purpose of God, I promise you, because He loves you so much, there's going to come a time where He is going to start flipping tables, I believe. Jesus has a righteous indignation against sin. We love it. He hates it. And this morning, at the end of service, we call this a response time. And I want to I just mention this to you. I have no idea what God has been communicating to your heart this morning. But what I do know is that he is. He is speaking to your heart. He is. He has walked in this morning, if by no other way than by the reading and the hearing of the word. And I believe that there are things in my life and things in your life that God wants out of there. And I'm going to ask you this morning, if you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you know, you know you've never trusted Christ, you know you're not saved. The Bible says that if we recognize that we have a sin, that we're a sinner, we can come to him like the lame and the poor and we can be totally healed. We can be forgiven of our sins through his sacrifice. What we do is say, Lord, I recognize I'm a sinner. I know that I need your forgiveness in order to be right with you. And God, I ask you to forgive me today and to be the Lord and Savior of my life. The Bible says all that call upon the name of the Lord shall never be ashamed. You can have that today. And maybe you're a, you're a Christian and you know it, but you've allowed these things to creep in. Guys, if John 2 is the beginning of his ministry and these are at the end of his ministry, there's over a three-year time between the cleansing of the temples. Shows how quickly we can return back to that activity. And I'm going to ask you, maybe there are things you're battling with and struggling with and you just need to really spend some time in prayer and give it up to the Lord today. Maybe you want to come with someone and pray and, and have them pray with you. And, and maybe you come before the church and just say, hey, I'm struggling with something. You don't even have to say what it is. Say, I'm struggling with something and I want to know that my church family is praying for me today. I want to know that my church family is coming alongside me and praying with me. Maybe you know you've never been baptized and Andrew's profession of faith this morning has triggered that in you. And you know you have not walked in obedience to the first step of Jesus Christ. And today, maybe that's your decision. Pastor, I've never, been, I've never been baptized, and today I want to make that known. I want to do it. And lastly, maybe you've never joined a church. Maybe you're not active in any local body. And this morning, if that's you, and you know that this is the place that God wants you to serve, to use your gifts and talents, I want to encourage you this morning to come right down at this response time. It'll give you an opportunity to say, Pastor, I want to unite with this church. Where our church would be glad to, to accept you. We would incorporate you into the worship and also into the service of God through this local place. We were made to know Him and to serve others. And I'm going to ask whatever decision you have this morning, you would make it to the glory of God. Father, I thank You. I thank You, God, that You give us opportunity, ample opportunity, to do the business that we need to do. And I pray, God, as you make it clear to each one of our hearts in specifics, helping us remove those idols or those things in our life that compete for the purpose that you've created us for. I pray that that sin, those habits, the activity that we're engaged in, God, that we know we shouldn't be. I pray, Father, you would help us away from that. That you would reveal that to us, give us the power to confess it to you and to turn from it and leave it with you at the cross. Whatever decision is made today, God, I pray that you receive glory and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.